Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, Jimmy Conrad talks about how he went from playing for the U.S. in a World Cup to being a cutting-edge YouTube star. He also tells one of the best post-game jersey exchange stories you'll ever hear from USA-Italy in World Cup 2006. Well, Del Piero had come on as a sub, so the first person I see after the game is Del Piero, and he looks at me and wants to, like, hey, you know, want to change jerseys? I was like, nah. So I waved off Del Piero. I mean, in hindsight, I'm like, what am I doing? But I went straight to Pirlo, and I asked him, and we switched jerseys. All that and my thoughts on soccer coming up. Take one. Here we go with my three thoughts on soccer. First up, this is a huge week for the U.S. men's national team. Nobody thought the Americans would lose their first two games of the Hex. Nobody thought Jurgen Klinsmann would be fired and Bruce Arena would come back in. Nobody thought the U.S. would be in danger of missing World Cup 2018. But here we are. The U.S. could really use a win on Friday against Honduras at home, and getting at least a point in Panama the following Tuesday would be big as well. As a language maven, I won't call these must-win games because they're not, but Friday is awfully close to it. What should you look for from kickoff to see if this is a Bruce Arena team? Remember what he preached in the locker room before the U.S. beat Portugal in World Cup 2002. First tackle, first foul, first shot, first goal. That's exactly what happened. Bobby Wood, Fabian Johnson, and DeAndre Yedlin are out injured, but the guys who were there can do those things. They will win on Friday. Take two. Next up, this week is a FIFA men's international window, and as I was going through the schedule of games around the world, it became clear again. The only qualifiers that I'm interested in watching are the ones in South America and the Hex in CONCACAF. I have a little interest in the UAE-Japan game, but I have zero interest in European World Cup qualifying. Austria-Moldova, Kosovo-Iceland, Luxembourg-France. Those are just a few of the spine tinglers on tap this week. But Uruguay-Brazil? I can get into that. Argentina-Chile? I can get into that. Mexico-Costa Rica? I can get into that. FIFA and its confederations need to figure out a way to make World Cup qualifying more interesting in Europe, Asia, and Africa. And that applies to CONCACAF in South America, too, when the World Cup expands to 48 teams for 2026, and the qualifying stakes get even lower with more spots available. If World Cup qualifying stops being interesting, people aren't going to watch. Take three. Finally, this week's interview comes from the Manhattan apartment of Jimmy Conrad, who might be the only guy who has played in a World Cup who has gone on to be a YouTube star. I love telling the stories of people from the culture of U.S. soccer, and Jimmy was extremely candid in our interview about a lot of things, including his upbringing, his soccer career, and the scary challenges of finishing your playing days and not knowing what comes next. The fact that Jimmy can do all this with a great sense of humor makes his story even better. Here's my interview with Jimmy Conrad. Our guest today is one of the unique people in American soccer. Jimmy Conrad walked on at UCLA where he won a national title, went undrafted in MLS before going on to win an MLS Cup title and MLS Defender of the Year award in a 13-year career. 
and he played for the United States in the 2006 World Cup. These days, he has a YouTube channel that's closing in on 100,000 subscribers. Thanks for joining me, Jimmy. Thanks for having me, Grant. And all those things you say about me, it feels like we're talking about somebody else <laughs> at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, thank you for inviting me into your home here. Sure. We are on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, if you hear some traffic sounds, that is because we live in the city, everyone. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a real deal, noise pollution. But uh, great to have you here. Um, and I guess I just wanted to start off by kind of recent stuff. Uh, we were both in Austin last week for South by Southwest. Uh, lots of different types of people come to Austin. Why were you there? Good question. So I got tapped on the shoulder to do some content for IDG.TV. They are pretty big in the tech space. They manage Macworld, PC World, Tech Hive, amongst other publications and websites. And they had a client, uh, the UK's Department for International Trade, where they wanted me to host their live streams. And then I did some content for them just around South by all the interesting things that are going on. And as you can attest, there's a lot of interesting things going on there. And a lot of people that are either looking for investment or got investment or just showing off all the new stuff that they have at their disposal, or all the new technology. And it's, it's a really interesting place to go and, and visit at that time. So I highly encourage anybody to do it just to kind of step back. Like, what is this? You know, where are all these people? But the energy is so great because people are open. They want to talk. They want to collaborate. And I, I find that to be very refreshing because sometimes here in New York in particular, everybody's got their head down and their headphones on and it's hard to have those same kind of interactions. It's still a little hard for me to imagine you as a New York guy because you've always been a California <laughs> yeah. guy. Um, you've been in New York for how many years? Almost five years. And you're about to move back to California, That's right. right? Uh, San Francisco. My mm -hmm. wife got a job with uh, Autodesk, which is a big software company. I didn't even know about it before she, or really done any research before she got the job. And it, I think it has two and a half, three billion dollars in sales a year. Wow. So it's a pretty big deal. I'm really excited for her. She's from, from Napa. So we'd be about 45 minutes from her family and my family's in LA. So we're happy to go back and the girls are excited to have a yard, you know, yeah. which is something you have to sacrifice when you live in Manhattan. Gotcha. Um, I want to talk about a lot of stuff, uh, including your journey. Okay. Um, but I kind of want to start in the present right now. When people ask you what you do these days, what do you tell them? I tell them I make internet. <laughs> uh, and if they want to take it one step further, I tell them that I'm your favorite former U.S. men's national team player that now makes internet. <laughs> so make internet. Yeah. Um, I enjoy your YouTube channel. Thank you. Um, as do a lot of other people. Um, and like for somebody, maybe we have some listeners who... Are aren't, unaware. Aren't on the YouTube train <laughs> yeah. at this point. How do you describe it? What do you what do you do? So I do a mix of I'd say news or some commentary. I have Monday and Friday are review and preview shows. So pretty simple. Uh, I try to sprinkle out my interests and my love to all leagues. You know, I think a lot of leagues don't get the respect that they deserve. So more often than not. You know, I always hit the top games that are in the big leagues, but I also talk about, let's say, Liga MA Keys, for example. I mean, big league to a lot of people, but maybe not so much to English speakers. Mm -hmm. um, I love getting into South American leagues. Um, I'll, I'll touch upon Australia or Japan or China. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, MLS always has a place because that's where I played and, and it's near and dear to my heart. So that's up there. And I think what I like to do 
And one of the ethoses of the job that I had before with Kick TV was we wanted to create a global conversation and to insert MLS into that conversation with respect. Not mm-hmm. tongue-in-cheek, not talking down to it, not being flippant in, flip in any way. Just, just, they're just part of the global conversation. And I think that carried over to when I started doing my stuff on my own, that I knew that the fan base and the audience that I had crafted there really appreciated that it wasn't just Premier League heavy or just Real Madrid and Barcelona or the odd story about Juventus or PSG or Bayern Munich who, you know, for better or for worse, dominate their leagues. And so it's harder for other people to conversation to get generated there. I know Borussia Dortmund with Christian Pulisic gets some mileage here because mm-hmm. we have an American there. So I just try to do that. And then in other ones, I just try stuff. I have one show called Curious News, uh, very curious news from around the globe with mm-hmm. me, the Conradinho, which is my nickname. <laughs> and it's just kind of the three top stories that are going on and it allows me to get out of the review and preview and talk about whatever, whether it's Jurgen Klinsmann or um, any other topics that are really floating my boat or I want to have some insight on Sepp Blatter or or whatever. And I had some other, uh, I get outraged every once in a while. And then I do some gaming. So I developed a relationship, a great relationship, and I love the guys at EA. So FIFA 17, and FIFA, the gaming in general, is a nice gateway to an audience that is consuming their content in a different way. And a lot of younger generation watch other people play video games. Mm -hmm. And I watched all these other top YouTubers from around the world develop large audiences, but also do it in a way where really loyal audiences. And once they branched off from that, the, the gaming part of it, the audience followed them and they got to, the audience got to learn about them as, as real people. And I thought that was really intriguing. Hmm. So FIFA, or EA, excuse me, came up and said, hey, we want you to be in our game this year. So you want, I'm like, you want me in the main menu? You know, like every time you turn on the game from Monday to Wednesday, I'm, I'm front and center ready to go, telling you about the top five players that people should buy if they're into the ultimate team, which is like the marketplace for FIFA 17. So I had a kind of a mad money Jim Cramer thing that I wanted to get into, but I, th- I think that was a little bit too extreme. So I scaled it back and basically it's a top five list and okay. it's two, two and a half minutes. And I thought, okay, great. Now I'm in FIFA. I'm in the game itself. I can't have people or direct people back to my channel and not have any FIFA 17 content. Mm-hmm. So I created this thing and there's, a, there's an option in the game called career mode where you can be any manager that you want. Um, or you actually yourself, you can manage any team that you want. So I created this thing, and I was at Atletico Madrid last year, and it was a blast. And I don't, I'm not good at the game. So I think okay. that in itself, the audience loves it in some ways because I'm probably just as good as they are or worse. And I think there's some power to the audience with regard to that. I mean, they just kill me in the comments. It's great. But then I asked for their suggestions. Who should I sign? Who should I go for? And we, with their help, I helped build this team. And then I crafted some characters. So it allows me to, you know, put, I, I dress like a... Um, so my nickname was Inyo because when you put your name in... The game, it's first name Conrad. And mm-hmm. I was going to go with my nickname and last name Inyo. So it'd be Conradinho. I just wanted Conradinho. But now I'm just manager Inyo. So what happened was when I got upset about something, I have fake press conferences and I answer questions from people with co- press conferences. Well, I got really upset about something. So I turned into Diego Simeone, dressed in all black, slicked my hair back. And my nickname is Mino. So I'm like a mean person. And then all of a sudden it just morphed into, well, these two kind of characters, which are obviously bipolar or you know, dual personality, well, they needed some help, so I developed Therapino. So I have a therapist who comes. It's, it's, it's ridiculous and so much fun. And I have a guy that helps me edit, and he's so spot on with his humor, and we're a nice uh, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwich because we just kind of understand each other's humor. It's been great. So I morphed into – I got fourth in La Liga in season one, and nice. now I took the Arsenal job. Um, so that's – we're only in three episodes in. But I have real life – so the next level is I've added real life people. So pundits that are Arsenal fans on YouTube mm-hmm. – 
I had them make me a video complaining about how I was the manager and how I need to be out. And that just killed my signings for like two minutes. It was great. And then I, re- I responded with Mino because obviously he's going to be my, my protector and bully. And it just, just keeps going. And now I'm going to have somebody play an agent and somebody's going to play a scout. And, and what I really want to do, honestly, end game for everybody watching, when I move back to the Bay Area, mm-hmm. I want to take over the San Jose Earthquakes in career mode. And then if I trade Wondolowski, I want to actually have a real sit down with him in real life and be like, hey, man. I got to let you go. You know, you're 34. You know, I, don't know what, I don't know what you expect from me. And just have this really cool kind of real life that, that, that goes past just being on a video game. And, and just to see how it – I've got big plans for the series. And it's been fun. Nice. So I do that. And I do pickup games around everywhere I go and I travel. So I've developed this game called Skill Check where I just play soccer tennis against other people. Mm-hmm. See if they can beat me. And I just did one in Austin. And it was a lot of fun. Nobody beat me just to put that out there. But, but I do pick up games as well, and it's been really well received. It's something I just wanted to do. I wasn't trying to get any notoriety from it or whatever, but, or to, you know, to make videos around it. Usually I just have my phone and take a picture and say thank you for everybody coming out because I love the, the feeling about it. It's really positive. Everybody that comes out, they're all shapes and sizes. They all have different beliefs and backgrounds. And all I care about is whether they have a first touch. And if they have a good first touch, then they can be on my team. Because they need to feed the bear. The bear's hungry. The bear wants to score. You know? And I'm the bear, obviously. <laughs> so, so it's been great. And I always make sure that I get that messaging across to them. And everybody that comes out is really positive, And it's been a lot of fun. And you know, sometimes we'll have... We, uh, before MLS Cup, I did one. There was 50 people in 25-degree weather. Then I did one in Sydney recently that had 80 people. And it's just, I think, start, slowly starting. Everybody's like, hey, come to my city. And when that happens, it creates a nice buzz. And it's been a lot of fun. Now, are you... I'm thinking about this right now. The most prominent former player I can think of, somebody who's played in a World Cup, <laughs> who is sort of in this new media media mm-hmm. realm that would not be called traditional media. This, you know, this YouTube realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other things that you're doing is that accurate? Or are there any other? I don't think there's anybody that, that I can think of that's doing it, and, and a lot of it is. I had to let go of that part of it. Now, when I first retired and did that, it took me about nine months to 12 months, nine to 12 months to shed not being identified as a player anymore. So I was depressed during that time because when you come out and you, you, all the things that you said about me at the beginning, you think, oh, wow, somebody's going to hire me for sure. Look what, I, look what I've done, everybody. And then you realize that nobody really cares. And you have to accept that. And that takes a while to accept. And then you have to figure out what you're going to move on to next. And then once you figure out what you're going to do next, you have to then accept again, go through another stage of acceptance of I got to start from the bottom and I have to learn all over again. And all the skill set that I had before, what's well, really not applicable right now. now. Now the mindset and how you approach something and the discipline, all that has helped me because I've done it before in another career. And I've, it's proven correct that if I just stick with it and try to get better every single day, that good things are going to happen and eventually... It did, and now I feel like I'm kind of in a sweet spot and gotten some momentum, and, and I found my voice, you know, and, and it's so kind of tangenting a little bit. I don't think there is really anybody else out there. Uh, I helped bring Heath Pearson to Kick TV. I, I'm, I'm excited that, that Stephen Keel and Kalen Carr are, are doing similar things, and, and I, I appreciate that voice. Now, I appreciate the other voices, too, when I see... Uh, like uh, Andrew Wiebe or uh, a Matthew Doyle, who I, I, their voices are very valuable in the space. But These it helps guys at MLS, the MLS, MLS guys, uh-huh, MLS yeah. guys, and and Kalen Carr and Stephen Keel are at MLS, yeah. and, and Kick TV is still a little bit under uh, under the umbrella of MLS. It's a nice contrast to uh, just every like the landscape, I'd say, 
so that we're not all just jerk, like proper journalists. Like you're a proper journalist. I'm a faux journalist. <laughs> Tops. Uh, but then you have these. I don't, I don't even. The, the word credible seems not right. It, it's they have experience playing, so they're going to be able to provide a different angle. But I think also what the journalists are providing are, are important too. You can't. I just don't think you can have all one and all the other. Yeah. I like that there's a merge, and, and I'm glad the guys are stepping up. So and, did you do improv classes when you were getting man, going? Man, good research. This? Yeah. I went to Upright Citizens Brigade, nice. UCB, and did some improv. And the, the thing that people talk about most with improv is yes and. Mm-hmm. So when you're in a scene with somebody, no matter what they say, you have to agree with them and accept their reality as your own and then try to one-up it. Not one-up it, but just kind of add a layer build. to it. Right, and just yeah. continue to build and build. And then from that, you'll start to explore all these other things. And you're almost developing your character in real time through comments that they're making. Because if they say to you, hey, we're, we're in a garage you know, looking at this old car, you can't say, we're not in a garage. We're at a restaurant. Like, that completely kills the whole scene. You have to just accept, yeah, you're right. That, I know, this, this 57 Chevy is just, wow, it's amazing, right? And I can't believe the color blue. And the other person goes, yeah, blue. I mean, it's not the same as uh, your mom's eyes, but I really like your mom's eyes. Hey, don't talk about my mom, but, you know, whatever. And it just keeps <laughs> building from there, and all of a sudden you've got this scene. And then, then because it's so organic, it's great. But f- the, the key for me, more than just the yes and, is listening. Mm-hmm. You're listening to what they're saying, and you're taking that information to help you build your own. And, and when it comes to interviews, it, it really helps to listen because sometimes when I first got started, I would just – be ready to ask my next question. I wasn't listening and I feel like I missed out on some golden opportunities to explore because sometimes people will give you something. Uh, They'll give you a little bit and if you just kind of push them into that area, you're going to get a great interview. But more often than not, I don't say more often than not, but it feels like there's always this crunch when you interview people and there's cameras and there's people around everybody wants to make sure you're asking the right questions. But but the listening part's really important and obviously uh, I think listening's applicable to real life so it's it's really been uh, helpful for me. I think that guy... (laughs) <laughs> he wanted to interrupt my, my listening. <laughs> Upright Citizens Brigade, by the way, started by Amy Poehler. Uh, a lot of other terrific comedians mm-hmm. involved in that over the years. Um, I actually saw a panel that they were involved in, some other UCB folks down in Austin. Oh, you did? Yeah. That's great. Um, but um, what would you say is your persona on... Or do you have different personas? Well, I, you... I, I think with my career mode, I've clearly got three different personas. You know, at times, I like to be jokey. You know, the, the kid in the back of the class that's running his mouth. I, I did that in real life, so that's a real thing for me. Um, I understand that when I go on camera, there's, there's probably an, an image, more of a caricature of myself where I'm wearing my clown nose and clown shoes. Uh, I've gotten into a few, I don't know, gentleman disagreements with, a, like, with agents or other people who have really been condescending to my content. And I found that interesting because that means they're not listening. If you can strip away the packaging, what I'm saying has some real merit. And I, I still don't know about, if you watch my previews, I give you some real meat. I'll just give that for an example. Sometimes I go after Jurgen Klinsmann and I dress up like an idiot and like just go way over the top. But if you listen to what I'm saying, there's some, there's, you might not agree with it, but I'm not just yelling to yell I, I really think through what I'm going to say what comes out of my mouth and it's very thoughtful uh, with, with regard to that I just package it in a way that's not always palatable to let's say an older generation 
Uh, I don't think I have really any disagreements um, with my younger generation. They might disagree with what I'm saying or just, hey, I think Cristiano Ronaldo is better than Messi or whatever. But, but in terms of how I package it, um, I haven't gotten too much feedback, uh, negative feedback from, yeah. from that younger generation. We talk about that younger generation. Like what age are your consumers for the most part? Is this like how young are we talking about? I would say my demographic is probably as young as 10. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then up to, I'm sure there's a full, you know, a few older people that, that like my stuff, but maybe the median average is, you know, young, early twenties. Um, but yeah, there's, I get recognized on the street sometimes and, and usually the ones that lose their, their minds the most are the younger ones, nice. you know, I get the older ones are too cool, I guess, to stop by and say hi. But, but, uh, it's fun. I actually think I'm more popular now than I was as a player. And I mean, it makes sense. I was a lowly defender that was passing the ball to the other guys that were really good and could score goals. I mean, I had my moments, of course. I don't totally buy this, by the way, <laughs> just, so, just so you know. Um, I remember you during your, your playing career as a guy who was better than maybe people realized, mm-hmm. um, who you were doing media during your career, I was. too. You're always a good in- interview, mm-hmm. um, but then you started doing media, and so I sort of maybe assumed that you would go into television, uh, that you would do kind of maybe what you would call more traditional stuff as there was more soccer mm-hmm. on U.S. Mm-hmm. television. Mm-hmm. And you have done some, mm-hmm. but it sounds like that's not the path you're on. I ran into a few brick walls. I started at Fox right after I retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was still working with Chivas in more of an assistant coach capacity, so I had a little more free time on the weekends. So I jumped in with Eric Winalda and Christopher Sullivan when they were doing um, live hits, like um, pregame, halftime, and postgame. Mm-hmm. And that was a valuable experience for me because I felt uncomfortable. I was mm-hmm. out of my comfort zone. I was still definitely a player in the player mindset. So you're very careful about what you say and how you say it because I remember how I felt when I was getting criticized on TV, and that was fresh. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to go out there and necessarily put my neck on the line. Whereas Eric, and Eric in particular, uh, doesn't care all that much. Um, and I think he likes putting his neck out on the line. And I, and I learned a lot from him and, and Sully and the whole production. Mm-hmm. What I didn't like was that somebody was in your ear. That takes a while to get into when you have somebody talking to you while you're trying to think yourself. So that, that's just a skill that you have to learn. And I've gotten better, much better at that. But they, they say to you, hey, you got 15 seconds to break down why Seattle Sounders won. Go. And you're like, uh... Well, Clint Dempsey had a hell of a game. Back to you, Eric. You know what I mean? It's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't really fit my personality. I wanted to explore a little bit more. I, I, th- I think the psychology of the game gets overlooked a lot. We talk about technical, tactical, physical ability, but never really the psychological side of it. Yeah, maybe in terms of how the coach got his guys fired up for the game, but nothing, the, the really breaking down what might be happening behind the scenes. And I'd like to explore that. That's, that's something that fascinates me, and I lived it, you know, and I'd seen it firsthand how if one guy's in a bad mood, how it can really impact the rest of the guys on the field. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, and I was uncomfortable, and I knew why I wasn't good at it yet. And I mm-hmm. knew that I was still trying to figure out, hey, is this really what I want to do? I, I, I know that I have the chops to be in media. I already had proven that, as you said, with some other stuff I had done along the way. But this just feels, I'm just not comfortable. Mm-hmm. So at the end of that year, Fox started giving me more like U17 stuff or putting me on the two-in-the-morning broadcasts of um, the FIFA Club World Cup, which was fine. I, I, I appreciated that. But when I did color commentary in particular, I, I think uh, the improv 
sets itself up nice. I was always kind of looking for a joke. Not all the time, but just to bring some levity to it. Because at the end of the day, this is still just a bunch of grown men in small shorts kicking a ball in a certain direction, True. right? Like, it's still a kid's game. And that's not to devalue the people that respect it that are watching it. But I think there's a balance there. I don't need to get all Mystery Science 3000 on it. And I did that once and got in big trouble. But it was an FC... I can get into it. It was an FC Dallas game. They're playing Taro FC. Nobody was in the seats. No, there's nobody there. This was seven years, six or seven, six years ago. I'm working with a, in a booth that's, as you've been in this Fox booth, booth right. there's no, I, you, you're basically shoulder to shoulder with the play-by-play guy. I've never met him before, so I don't have any rapport. He throws it to me right away, and I say, hey, looks like there's plenty of seats still available <laughs> for this one. And he kind of cracks up. The producer's laughing in my ear, and for me, laughing's gold, right? So I'm like, all right, cool. It seems like this is the theme. And I just went on and not necessarily poking fun and like Kevin Hartman still trying to hold on to the, you know, the bleach hair, even though it's clear he's 45 and, and all these little tiny things. And I got in trouble. I don't know how many people were. And it's, what's funny was that on Twitter, Twitter was emerging at that point right. and some people loved it and other people hated it. There was like no in between. <laughs> and then I got pulled. Uh, so maybe five months later, fast forward to MLS cup um, at the end of that season and FC Dallas is like hey dude that was totally messed up what you did on that broadcast and by the way would you want to be our full time color guy and I was like well that doesn't make any sense <laughs> well, how is that possible so there, it was interesting and I think I think I went too far obviously mm-hmm. but I think there's some there's some middle ground there and I did some stuff with the Timbers and and when you work with production teams that are in traditional media that's they want traditional stuff so I would get frustrated mm-hmm. like you you hired me right like you want me if you didn't want me, then go find somebody else. And so I kind of ran into that a little bit more. And I'm, I'm a team player, but I would get frustrated. Like, you're trying to package me to be somebody that I'm not. So why would you even hire me in the first place? Right. So the color commentary for me is, is, is and I, I, I didn't appreciate how hard it is or how hard it was. I don't do it so much anymore until I did it myself. And I know with more reps, repetitions than anything, you're going to get better. Yeah. But once this opportunity came to be on YouTube and you could speak directly to an audience and you could break down that fourth wall and you could have a real conversation with them and you could speak at length. And when I started to get comfortable with that, all right, cool, how are we crafting these conversations? What kind of vehicles can we bring and in, put into place to, you know, and to make that happen, to make it quicker, to make it more digestible? Uh, you start to learn all the trends and, and how people are consuming content and you just adapt accordingly. And I thought mm-hmm. that felt more fluid and, and something that I was more interested in mm-hmm. than let's say the stereotype behind traditional media, mm-hmm. suit, tie, play it straight kind of stuff. Now, yeah. I mean, I see more former players, especially over in England, you know, they sit on the couch and they just talk trash, but, but they get that out because there's so many of them. I think just one of them, you know, gets going and then the rest of them kind of jump in. And, and so I, you can sense that it's starting to happen a little bit um, without being forced, right? I mean, yeah. there's a lot of forced media out there where they're trying to get headlines or SEO or right. you know, search engine optimization for all those people that don't know what SEO is um, entitling stuff just to get click and click baits and all that. So that's, that's frustrating. But I think what I provide is I, I give you to try to give it to you straight. Um, try to have a, a, my own opinion about it and not to back away from that opinion. Um, and, and I try to have fun while I'm doing it. Uh, and I think that's, that balance is always good for me. And that's how I live my life where I, I take what I do serious, but not myself serious. And so I yeah. want my content to be portrayed the same. Like, all right, what he's saying means something if you're listening, right? You can get past the packaging, but it's, it's packaged in a fun way. I mean, if you, I was going to ask you this. In, you are what zany might be a word. I don't know if you like that <laughs> word or, to describe how you approach a lot of your stuff. Do you think that zaniness 
has caused some people to forget that this guy was a really good soccer player. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I did an MLS uh, media car wash for preseason. I was out there doing some stuff with Heineken. And one of the players on San Jose, uh, Fatai Alashe? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think before, he had no idea. I think he knew that I played, maybe played for the Earthquakes, but he had no idea to play in the World Cup or any of that stuff. And because I'm zany, as you say, uh, yeah, I think that there's just people like, no way. There's just no way that guy played in the World Cup because I'm just, I, I take risks, I guess. I don't, it's not that I don't care about how I look or how I'm perceived. I just kind of let that part of it go. I, I enjoy being myself and the luxury of social media is that you can be yourself. There are times you can run into trouble and, and you have to deal with those consequences. But, but ultimately, I'd like to stay true to myself and, and to take, take this pers- in a personal direction, when Bob Bradley was the coach of the national team, I tried so hard to be what he want, what I thought he wanted me to be. Which is what? Well, there's a certain kind of player, a certain kind of approach to the game mm. that, he, that he enjoys and that he wants out of his players. It's like 24-7 dedication. And I tried to give him that, but at the same time, I just had a new baby. Um, and I was dealing with kind of the post-World Cup depression that's real. Like you've, you've achieved everything you ever thought you were going to achieve. What's next? And, and that process. And so there was a lot that was going on at that time. And so instead of just being true to myself, regardless of what, what happened, whether he took me to the 2010 World Cup or not, I would have felt a lot better about all that. But instead, I, I just tried to be what he wanted me to be. And that didn't work either. So I'm definitely kicking myself. So now moving on and learning from that experience. Excuse me. I'm now even more assertive and just, just be yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you have an opinion, that's fine. Have, a, have an opinion and put it out there. And if people disagree, well, I respect that. And I think once you kind of accept that everybody, there's going to be people that disagree and you can respect differing opinions, then it's not such a big deal. Like, oh, great, cool. I'm glad you feel that way. I, this is how I feel. And right. let's, let's be friends. Yeah. Now, not everything you do video-wise is zany. And <laughs> there was one video you did when you were still at Kick TV, um, which, uh, what was it called? Draw, Draw my, my Life. Draw My Life. Draw My Life, Jimmy Conrad. And I remember seeing this, what year is this, like 2012, 13? 2013, I think, yeah. Um, and I was kind of floored by it. I think if you want to stop the podcast for a second, just for a second, and <laughs> Google this, it's, it's really, um, it's almost emotional. Mm-hmm. To, to watch this and it was not something that I'd seen from you before video wise and can you tell the audience here about it and what you revealed sure and why you did it so with regard to YouTube as I mentioned with the audience before there's a real direct relationship and you have the opportunity to listen to what they say or about either the opinion that you put on there or maybe they don't like the style of show and, and as I said before you can adapt accordingly and we got to this point where I did a Q&A and I asked the audience, and Draw My Life was a very popular trend on YouTube at that point. And I said, do you guys want me to do that or do you want me to do this? I can't even remember what the other one was. Uh, I don't have workers in my apartment, by the way. <laughs> Only I, upstairs. Any noise, any noise. <laughs> the best part is that we can mind trick everybody and say this is just tracks underneath. We're not actually in the city or in a really nice studio. Um, we just have to act like we're in a studio. So the Draw My Life was a really popular trend and all the comments, I would say 95% of a couple hundred comments were all, draw my life, draw my life, draw my mm. life. So I'm like, all right. 
So I sat down and I watched a lot of other Draw My Lives and a lot of them were very personal. Mm. And I thought, okay, well, I guess that's the direction I need to go. And I knew that when you watch it, you, I'm speaking to a certain demographic and, and really I wrote it with my little brother in mind, my youngest brother. Mm -hmm. He's 19 years younger than me. He's only known me as a guy that's had success, but he didn't, ha he didn't know the struggle or all the things that kind of came before that. And so when, he, when we interacted, I always felt, I'm his big brother, so there's always that kind of looking up to me, but there, I felt like it was a little extra because of all these things that I had achieved. I'm like, man, you, have, you don't, it, I'm not trying to say, make it more impressive based on the adversity I face, but there's a lot of struggle there. And I, I wanted to, him to relate to it because I think at some point he's going to go through that struggle as well. And I want to let him know that there's, if you, if you can put your head down and persevere, that there's good things that can happen for you, but you have, to, you have to first believe that you're capable of it. So I started there and I actually wrote to him. So I wrote this whole hmm. script and a lot of it is how I grew up. Um, I was born to parents that were 18 when they had me. They broke up before I was born. And so you've already come up into this adversity right away. Yeah. And I've never really known anything different. And I had an epiphany around age 23. I don't even know if I brought this up in the draw of my life, but I, I was trying to figure out why I was wired a certain way, why I was always trying to prove to everyone why I was good enough or, or to prove that I was good enough. And I knew there was a lot of turmoil when I was younger about whether my mom should have kept me, you know, should she have had an abortion, should she give me up for adoption. Um, obviously now her life, her, her life completely changes. Any hopes or dreams that she had has to get shelved. Same with my dad. And the decisions they made to do that, and I knew that my mom's side, I don't even know if it was my dad in particular, just the fact that, that some boy got their daughter pregnant, and now they have to deal with the aftermath. And I knew that the better that I did at life, the, the more people would look back on the decision to keep me as something that was positive. Hmm. And so when you have that kind of in, like inner drive, uh, and I have that. And I still, I can't even fight, I can't even shake it. It's just, it's, it's wired in me to continue to prove uh, that I'm good enough and that I want to keep, keep pushing and all that. Uh, it's, that was kind of the genesis of it. And then from there, I, I get into a little bit more of the specifics of my story with regard to the draw of my life of the things I was told by certain people that I would never make it and, and being a walk-on at UCLA, not being drafted and having to go through that whole process again. Like, I won a national championship. There were five seniors on that team. The other four guys got drafted. How was that possible that I didn't get drafted? I just didn't understand. And so to have to go through that process of acceptance and a little bit of depression, even at age 20, 21, was, was difficult. But I went down to the San Diego Flash in the A-League. That's probably comparable to the USL and D2 now mm -hmm. and, and the NASL. I played 30 games in six months. Had I gone to the Galaxy or anybody else right away, I wouldn't have played at all. So those games were really valuable. And I mm -hmm. had to decide then whether I wanted to become a professional or not. Because I slept on floors, I ate top ramen, I made $800 a month. I was trying to train twice a day. I was trying to do so much ball work on the side and anything I could do to get better. And then I got called up to San Jose the next year and signed as a discovery player. Of all the rules they have, that was a fun one. A discovery player. I remember talking to Ivan Gazidis on the phone. And he called me, he said, hey, listen, uh, San Jose wants to offer you a contract. It's for $24,000. Uh, the Galaxy has also put a bid in for you. But the Galaxy at that time were managed by Octavio Zambrano and they weren't he had lied to me a few times along the way that he was going to bring me in and didn't when I was training with them on the side. And so I said, Zizi, I'm going to go to San Jose. And I told him that I was going to be an all-star one day. And he just laughed. He's like, I hope that happens for you, you know. Um, so it's, and it did. And, uh, and I, 
Ivan was always great to me throughout the, my whole career in the league before he left to go to Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, when I broke my jaw, he sent me a, you know, a nice note to say he hopes mm-hmm. I feel better. And I always feel like I had, maybe from that conversation, I think mm-hmm. Ivan was always pulling for me a little bit. So, so it really just kind of, it goes back into that, those decisions you make. Ultimately, the draw of my life is, I had a decision. I could have just accepted the fact that I wasn't good enough at the time and float around until I figured out what I was good at, or I just jump in with both feet and see what happens. And this is what happened. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, you played in the World Cup in 2006, and not only did you play in that World Cup, you were one of the U.S.'s better players in that World Cup, in my opinion. I appreciate and, that. And I think others. <laughs> um, could you take me through it a little bit? You came on. You didn't play in the first game, so you weren't part Thankfully. of that. weren't part of that debacle. <laughs> I was on the, the sideline. Checks. I was warming up. It was me, Josh Wolf, and Clint Dempsey warming up on the sideline because we had made two subs at halftime. Mm. So in the second half, we're warming up, and we're like, I've never seen a national team play that well before. And I had, I was relatively new to the national team scene in general, but mm. I had been with the team for about a year, year and a half, and I had never seen Czech Republic were amazing. Um, had they not lost Jan Kohler to that hamstring thing, eighteen minutes in after he. Like slam dunked a goal in the third minute, I, they would have gotten through the group. I just don't have any question. I mean, uh, was it Rosiski and yeah. uh, and Nedved? I mean, those guys were unbelievable. And then the rest of the team were ready. They were just up for us. So that game, I was like, wow, these guys are excellent. So that was and then Josh. I think ended up getting in. I mean, Clint were just. I guess we'll go sit back at the bench, you know. And and so Clint and I were both fired up. And right after that game, him and I. Walk back in the locker room, like, let's go get some ball. I mean, I have so much extra energy and adrenaline right yeah. now. Let's just grab everybody that, isn't, that hasn't played. Let's just kind of blow it out. Let's play a little possession or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, was good for him and I in particular because mm-hmm. we ended up playing in the next two games. And, and You came on in the, the 52nd minute of yeah. the second game against like, Italy. The team would go on to win the World Cup, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, U.S. gets a point out of this game. And it's actually, I think maybe because the U.S. didn't advance in that tournament, people sort of underplay what a classic game that Italy game was. What was it like for you? What do you remember? Well, I remember people telling us before that game that Italy's going to be small. Because like, after Czech Republic, when you had Jan Kohler and, and uh, some other guys, huge, massive guys uh, on the Czech team, Oh, well, Italy's going to be smaller. Don't worry about it. And I remember seeing Italy like, these guys are brick houses. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, Cannavaro's 5'10", but he's like, he's big. He's barrel chested. He's ready to go and he can jump through the roof. Uh, you know, um, Buffon is a big guy. I mean, they're all big guys. Yeah. And, and so I just remember thinking that when I'm walking through, go to, go to the bench. I'm like, Who, whoever gave us that load of crap uh, <laughs> should be shot. <laughs> so we get out there and then. It's a back and forth game. We gave up a pretty cheap first goal. I remember sitting there going, "Oh man, you know, we tried to hold a high line. It's always dangerous." We just saw in the regular Champions League game with PSG in Barcelona, where holding the high line when you don't need to, just you're asking for danger. Uh, different conversation. And then uh, we end up getting one back. Zambrada hit an own goal, so it was one-one. And then all of a sudden, it's like red card central. Yeah. You know, Pablo, and I love Pablo Mastriani, but he just kind of had a Russian blood to the head to make a play, and he gets a straight red card. And I think De Rossi had a red card before that when he elbowed McBride. Right. So we, we were even numbers. And then right after halftime, uh, Eddie Pope got a second yellow. And the referee, you could see it, didn't realize he had already booked him. Really? Yeah, so he had to throw him out at that point. He had already reached for it. So Eddie comes off, and Mooch, Glenn Myernick, comes over. like, Jim, you're going in. And I had just eaten an energy bar, a Gatorade bar, because I thought, all right, if I'm going to get into this game, I always pre- prepared myself mentally for any situation. 
probably gonna be the last 10 minutes. Maybe hold on to a lead. So I'm gonna eat this Gatorade bar because I'm starving right now. And you just don't know. And I just finished eating it. And he goes, go in. I didn't even need to warm up. My blood was through the roof. Yeah. Oh, man. I couldn't believe that I was gonna play in a World Cup. And they like, yeah, do a few sprints. I'm like, I don't need sprints, man. I am ready to go. So I remember just doing a few and getting my shin guards out and just being in a daze. Like, this is insane. I can't believe I'm getting into this game. Um, and they brought Bobby Convy off, who naturally was disappointed to come off. And I just slotted in next to Gooch. And what I really liked about my performance in particular, because we were now down 10, 10 men to nine, and they were pushing to get that, that second goal when we were going to be on our heels, I thought we did an excellent job of holding a high line and keeping our team shape compact. And that was one of my, I won't say gifts, but I, I was good at communicating and getting people in good spots mm. and trusting other people to, and them trusting me in return, to hold a really steady line. Now, there's a, there's a, you don't want to be too high, you don't want to be too deep, but there was that line. And I think if you look at the second half after I came in, I think we held them offside six or seven times, which is pretty remarkable. You don't see that very often, um, especially with the numbers that way. Usually people just sit on top of the box and absorb and absorb and absorb. So I was really proud of that part of my performance, something nobody will ever talk about except me who's geeking out about it. But I really liked that. And then I thought Luca Tony, to get particular, I thought he was really soft. I thought he was going to be a little bit stronger and harder yeah. and throw elbows. And he just wanted to dance, baby. He didn't want to – just wanted to play. Just wanted to prove he could do with the other guys. But I got a couple good tackles in. I got a good clean tackle on Pirlo, which was cool. And, and to run around with those guys, I mean, it's – you let it go once you get out on the field and you're just making your decisions as fast as possible. Yeah. But I remembered the, the heightened drama. I mean, you could sense it. And Clive Charles said to us before we left to go on the trip that – when you do get on the field, you should take a moment to look around, smell the grass, and hear the sounds, and really give it that because you'll never forget it. And he was right. Huh. And I remember in that moment thinking, this is the most glorified Sunday league game of all time. <laughs> and it helped me completely relax. I was nervous, of course. <laughs> yeah. But that really, that, that thought, it's just a lot of people watching a glorified Sunday league game, really helped me just be even and not go too high or too low and just, just make plays. Just focus on one play at a time. And the World Cup level is so fast. You know, there are times at MLS or even in, in um, lower, I don't know, lower stakes national team games, friendlies, yeah. the game's not moving that fast. You have time to, ball goes out of bounds and you have time to think about, oh man, should I have done that? Should I have done this? Should I have done that? The World Cup level, you got no time for anything. It's just next play, next play, next play, yeah. next play. And for me, as someone that for a long time had to shake the emotional impact of making a bad play, the best. I love the World Cup. I play a ton of World Cups because you didn't, you couldn't look back. You only could look forward to stay in the present. You couldn't even look forward. You just stay in the present. And the fact, what I love too, and I think this this police officer will like it too, is uh, is that every roll of the ball mattered, and you can sense that yeah. from the fans watching, and you knew that the stakes were so heightened. Some people uh, bow down to pressure or back away from pressure. I love it. I love to embrace the pressure. Yeah. The more pressure, the better. Okay. And despite being down you know 10 to 9 on the player front the US gets a point out of that game mm -hmm. and, and gave yourself the chance to advance in the third game and getting that point against a team like Italy had to have been a cool thing in terms of other cool moments about that Italy game whose jersey did you get good question so the story goes there were four guys on Kansas City i'm going to i'm going to go all the way to the, the the beginning of this there's four guys on Kansas City yeah. that were on the bubble to make the team. Me, Josh Wolf, Eddie Johnson, and Kerry Zavagnin. So the day that the roster gets announced, Kerry's the only one that's left off. Mm. And he is shattered. I mean, that, that was it. He was 30, 30, 30, 29 or 30. And so that was, he wasn't going to go to the next one. 
it was hard not to feel for him at that point. And so I went over to him and said, hey, you know the three teams we're playing against. If there's any jersey I can get for you, who would it be? And he said, Andrea Pirlo. So I said, all right, I'll get it for you. So after that game, I mean, not really knowing if I'd get it for him or not, but I was going to try. So after that game, game's over, 1-1, we're really proud. You can just feel the energy. The Italians, to their credit, were really impressed with our performance. And not the fact, we, we, we weren't trying to lump balls. We were actually trying to play out of situations in 10v9. And I think they were really respectful of, of how we approached that game and how we adapted uh, throughout. And I thought that was really neat. Well, Del Piero had come on as a sub. So the first person I see after the game is Del Piero. And he looks at me and wants to like, hey, you know, want to change jerseys. And I was like, nah. So I waved off Del Piero. <laughs> I mean, in, in hindsight, I'm like, what am I doing? But I went straight to Pirlo. And I asked him and we switched jerseys. Uh -huh. And so when I came back, I gave Carrie Zavagnon the Andrea Pirlo jersey. So I don't wow. even have it anymore. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a story. Yeah. I love the fact you waved off Del Piero. I That's did. Crazy. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, I'll never forgive myself for that because that guy's a legend. But, but uh, and I've got a new, at that time, I didn't really appreciate Andrea Pirlo yeah. like I do now. How he can control a game without sprinting ever. But at that time, I knew he was good, but, but Carrie really knew yeah. how good he was. And so he... I'm glad he got the jersey because he's somebody that, that knew about Pirlo right from the get-go. Just yeah. recognized super talent. Very cool. Yeah. Um, obviously, you had a long career playing-wise, but you had a lot of concussions too. And I'm wondering how much you might have played longer if you had not had those. Your name's Grant Wall, right? <laughs> Sorry. That's how, I, that's how I handle concussion stuff. Uh, so I retired at age 34. Um, I had a really bad concussion for the U.S. against Panama in the 2009 Gold Cup. I got knocked out, had 20 minutes of post-impact amnesia. Wow. And when I watch the replay, it's hard because not only do I get hit in the temple by somebody else's head, when I fall, I also land on my face. I broke my thumb. Like I said, I just went limp. So I, there might have been a double hit there. Um, so that was scary. And I remember mm -hmm. waking up in the ambulance with only being able to see out of one of my, like the bottom half of my left eye. But I do remember when I got carted in, Kyle Beckerman scored. So that was like he tied it up 1-1. <laughs> so I was pretty excited that we had scored because I think we had gone down. Or, or no, maybe that was the one to win it. Anyway, so that one really impacted me. And I started to get more concussions for littler things. Mm. And I told my wife that I had, if I had suffered another one, that made me scared. Mm -hmm. And they're all kind of scary because they're real unknown. You don't really sure. know what the impact or how you're going to heal from them. But if I ever felt really uncomfortable or queasy, that I would stop. So when I went to Chivas USA, Robin Frazier and Greg Vanny were there. Uh, we were playing against Colorado in the second game of the year, and I got punched in the back of the head by Matt Pickens. Mm. Like, I just got to the corner kick first at a near post run, and he just came punching through and got me. I don't blame Matt Pickens, but I had blacked out for maybe two or three seconds. Mm. And then Connor Casey had come on as a sub, with 10 minutes left. I didn't tell anybody because Pablo had, had gone down for Colorado and been hurt for about five minutes. I'm like, all right, I think I, I, think I feel all right, which is the, like the worst thing for you to say. I think I feel all right. And then Connor Casey came in and he kind of clocked me with an elbow just in my face, but enough, you know, that jarring doesn't help. I mean, if you're going to get, if you have a concussion, you get hit again, that's 10 times worse. And they might even say 100 times worse. So you, you, just to take that second impact before your, your, your brain has had a chance to kind of mm. reset or whatever it is. I don't I know all the technical jargon. Right. Um, so after that, I took all the tests, and I went to a neurologist, but I had a headache for three months. 
Mm. I couldn't shake it. I just had my second baby. I'm 34. I'm not going to get called into the national team anymore. And for something, for someone like me that, that needed that external carrot in some ways, to not have that as a carrot anymore was a bit deflating. Like, not that I don't want to do well for Chivas and help them win games and all that, but, but it always felt nice to have that national team carrot. Like, okay, if I play well here, that, that's, that's a possibility as well. Mm-hmm. That's a reward for good performances. And not having that took it, took it out of me a little bit too. So you have all these factors that are coming into play. And yeah, I probably could have played a, a few more years. Mm-hmm. But I ended up with, with Robin and Greg, who had known me since I was 21 or 22. They're like, you know, I don't know if you know what CTE is. And I didn't, so I went and mm-hmm. read up on CTE. And that's scary, like, to read anything about CTE. And so what was, what was the point of that? You know, Chivas was still a rebuilding project. They don't even exist anymore. So there was a lot at stake. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. So I got out, and then I, I remember them and, and me talking. We acknowledged that that was what was going to happen so they could kind of move my salary somewhere else and sign another player. And once it was official, I just I went back into my car and like just cried. Huh. Cried for 30 minutes, tried to call my, my wife. I called my mom too, but I called my wife, and she thought I had gotten into a car accident or something bad had happened. So she was relieved, and it was just me upset about officially retiring, which is what I think she was ready for me to do that anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, it's intense. And, and, you know, I went through the workers' comp stuff with the league and, and you know, you talk to doctors and it's you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how your brain is going to take these types of things and how you kind of relayered some of your wiring and mm. if I'm going to be drooling at age 50 and that kind of stuff. So for me, I really went to bat for making sure I had my medical covered for life yeah. with regard to that because I didn't feel like it was fair to dip into my girl's my two daughters' college funds when I'm, you know, maybe going, taking a <laughs> turn uh, the, the wrong way. And I'm, I'm used to seeing you so animated. Like, you mentioned depression a couple of times mm-hmm. in this conversation, including after you stopped playing. Are we talking about the real thing? I think so, for sure. You, with regard to the end of the career, the only thing you've, you're, you're known as is a soccer player. Yeah. I grew up in a family that, Oh, that's Jimmy the soccer player. Everybody knew me as the soccer player. And when that's taken away, it's really hard. And, and there's no support system. You just deal with it on a daily basis. Now, thankfully, I had some experience in a different field where I was going to get some opportunities, so let's say, to, to test the media mm-hmm. and to figure out you know, what was the best thing for me. And then the opportunity to, to do Kick TV, which was brand new. Nobody had done it before. Kind of get to create whatever it's going to end up being and whatever it's going to evolve into is a lot more attractive to me. So we moved here to New York on that, on a whim of like, we thought we'd just be here a year and it's turned into five, but there was something about molding something and and taking a job that was still trying to figure itself out as I was trying to figure my own self out as opposed to, because I had gotten an offer to do color commentary for the galaxy had we stayed in LA, which would have been great. Mark Rogadino, I went to college with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's very fun. We have a good rapport. It would have been great. But they could only promise me 16 dates a year. Yeah. And that's just not enough camera time. I just needed more camera time. And so to, because I knew, I know that repetition just makes you better. So I needed those repetitions. Right. And I knew being on camera an hour, two hours every day with Kick TV was just going to make me better. And it has. And I, I feel like because I went the YouTube route, I know so much more about the rest of the business. I had to teach myself how to edit when I left Kick TV, um, producing, learning how to pitch projects, all these different hats that I've talked to the MLS Players Union about developing a program where maybe guys that are currently playing can maybe shadow what I'm doing or just be on emails. Mm-hmm. And just so I can let them know, it's not always about the talent. There's so many cool jobs behind the scenes that, that I think 
people would like. And so I, I'm trying to develop something with the MLS Players Union now huh. to, to provide guys with opportunities um, because it's for as much fun as I have on camera, there's a camera guy who's loving every single minute of what we're doing too. Uh, or there's an editor who's like, this is so cool. We're in Brazil for the World Cup for 40 days and look at all the cool stuff we get to do. And those guys are going to, to games with me too. They're just not on camera. So there's a lot of different stuff um, out there and, and I don't know if guys are exposed to it, but if they could get exposed to it early and then pick and choose which role they want to do, then I could help them or I could push them in a direction where they could kind of explore that a little bit. I find it interesting. You are, you are a defender. You are a, a creative guy. <laughs> and this actually came up recently because um, George Qureshi, who runs Howler, wrote a piece for the Washington Post. Um, and I love George's work. I did disagree with something he wrote in this piece. And Alexi Lawless, a former defender, did as well, which is the implication that if you're a defender, you aren't really creative now, that's I, not just on the field, but mm-hmm. in, I guess, life. Mm-hmm. Um, but you and Alexi, I think, would be sort of uh, a rejoinder. I'd to like that. to think so. Uh, I would disagree with him because I came from a place where I got that creativity pushed out of me as a player. I realized that one of my big thrills, or everybody plays the game for a reason. There's, there's a reason they're excited. Let's use Freddie Adu as an example. He loved to beat somebody. And not and wait for them to catch up so he could beat them again. There was something that's what makes him excited about the game. And, and and as a defender, when you learn what makes people tick and why they're out there in the first place, and you take that away from them, they get frustrated that much quicker. And I enjoyed that part of it to kind of frustrate people. And maybe I still do that uh, in media sometimes. Um, there are some people I think are frustrated with me. <laughs> that different conversation, Grant. But um, so there was some creativity in how I played and. And I like to put fires out before they start, and I try to be cerebral in my defending. So I, I do agree, disagree with George in, in some capacity. There are also some creative things that I didn't get to do that I harnessed because it wasn't the position. And I remember Bob Gansler, who coached the 90 World Cup team for the U.S. and was my longtime coach at Kansas City. He'd be so mad at me for trying stuff in and around the box and to try. Because I always thought I was a math guy. I was a math major. Mm-hmm. So as a math major and seeing the world through math, there was only one solution. So I was just thought, okay, in every situation on the field, there's one solution. Mm. Now, I tried to find, to my detriment, detriment uh, the aesthetically pleasing solution, whereas sometimes it's just playing it back to the goalkeeper. Right. And I just wouldn't accept that. I just couldn't accept that that was the best solution. So sometimes I would try to do three or step overs and try all these other little <laughs> stuff. And I got better as I got older at picking my spots. Yeah. But when I was younger, man, I tried a whole bunch of different stuff. And it, it worked out sometimes, but it was risky and when there was no need to take that risk. So that creativity got stamped out of me a little bit. And if I wanted to have a long career and if I wanted to be successful at this job and, and to be a good defender, I needed to just leave that to the side for a while. However, from a creative standpoint, I did have the outlet. I wrote for Sports Illustrated for a while uh, and ESPN mm-hmm. and had a radio show. And so I had an outlet and a platform to express myself in a different way. And I think that was enough. I think I filled that bucket. Yeah. And now, but, but yeah, I could, I could see stereotypically why you'd think right. that defenders are kind of like, where do I play the ball? <laughs> Who am I marking today? You know, I mean, I, yeah, there's, there's some players out there like that, of course. I mean, they're, that, that's not just isolated to America. That's all over the place. You put your big thugs in the back and let them intimidate the attackers. Like, I get it. Uh, you know, but, but yeah, I think Alexi's another good example of, you know, we're now having the opportunity to, or allowed to, get to use the other part of our brain in a, in a way that's, I'd like to think, positive. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to end this podcast without 
bring up Mexico a little bit because you were often in storylines against Mexico. You scored a goal against Mexico for the U.S. Sure, roll the clip. Can we roll the clip? <laughs> Can we roll the clip? Oh, there's no video here? <laughs> I pretty much brainwashed my audience. They just roll their eyes when they see it. It's like one of those jokes that was funny to start and then just not funny anymore. Now I think it's cycling back to being funny again. So. <laughs> And also, you have kind of a crazy story about an international incident that you caused with Mexico. Mm. You want to share it? Well, yeah, it was right after. Sure. So there was a time where U.S. and Mexico, I'll say a time, this makes it sound so dramatic. So U.S. and Mexico in the 2009 Gold Cup, I was hurt. That was when I had the concussion. I stayed with the team. So we were in Chicago. We beat Honduras in the semis, and Mexico beat, I don't know who else, um, in the other semi, maybe Panama. And in the plane, well, actually, I should back it up one step because the coach of uh, Mexico had kicked a Panamanian player earlier in the tournament. So he got suspended until the final. What was his name? Which, which manager was it? I forget which one. I forgot it was, too. He, uh, it could have been Aguirre. But, um, so anyways, to give you some context, he kicked this player, and it was a big incident. Because the ball had gone out of the sideline, and he didn't have to stick out his foot, and he left it hanging there, and he kicked the Panamanian player, and he got kicked out. And it was like, wow, I'd never seen that before. So we get on this plane, and we're sharing it with Mexico to go to the, the final. Which is weird, by the way. Yeah, which is weird. We share our charter. And they're already on the plane, so we're going on second, and we're going to get the back of the bus, as it were, and they got the front, which is fine. Whatever. Who can sit wherever. It was just, the whole thing was just uncomfortable. So Stu Holden and I were talking about how weird that was, and, and guy came up. With this line of, you know, wouldn't it? Well, basically, the tweet was, "This um, we're sharing a plane with Mexico. I hope the coach doesn't kick me when I walk past them in the aisle," <laughs> uh, which is amazing, right? What a great tweet! So I text my friend at that time. I had uh, I had somebody kind of helping me with my Twitter because I was tweeting all. I didn't understand Twitter at that point. It's pretty early in Twitter. Really early in Twitter, and. We would do like fake headlines uh, at that time and somebody that was helping me write for my website at the time and I don't know what I was doing at the time. I've just, just been focusing on soccer. <laughs> but I wasn't. And now that I was hurt, it was kind of like, ah, whatever, I'm not playing. So I text him like, hey, you know, this is a funny tweet. And he ends up tweeting it out when we're on the plane. So now it's got time for three hours to <laughs> gestate with the audience. I get off the plane. I had like 800 followers at that time, which I thought was a lot. I was like, ooh, 800 followers. I had 1,500 more of them by the time I got <laughs> off the plane. And most of them were Mexican. And my mentions were just, I mean, you couldn't, like death threats and all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and I learned a valuable lesson there because I saw it and I didn't know what to do. I panicked. Mm. And I knew that because Bob Bradley was a coach, who he's not, he's pretty anti-media and he's not, very friendly to that. I'm like, well, come on, how am I going to explain this? I mean, I didn't technically tweet this. My buddy did. Um, I mean, I, I didn't say no, but I didn't say yes either. I kind of just wanted to think about it. I and mean, we could have tweeted that out anytime. Do What do I do? And in, in hindsight, all I needed to do was to tweet one more time and to say, hey, listen, that was a joke. I apologize if I offend anybody. But that was so early in the Twitter game, I didn't know. So I deleted the tweet. But huh. Yeah, you know, didn't know screen grabs were out there, or didn't appreciate that screen. So screen grabs are all out there. It ends up being the leading story uh, for Sports Center down in Mexico. Wow. I have like somebody on Facebook going like, "Why are you on the lead story of Mexico?" The whole country's offended. Everybody's upset. I have to apologize. I'm not even playing. I have to apologize to the Mexican media the next day 
And U.S. soccer is upset, right? Because it's just, it's unnecessary. And I understand that. I'm like, oh man, Bob's never going to call me in again. And I just think, and I've got a concussion, you know, can I just blame the concussion? Blame the concussion, yeah, I should have. <laughs> well, I was like, I was in panic mode. And I know that U.S. soccer was trying to do their best to put out some fires. And, and I'm sure they talked to you and some other people just like, you know, this got a little out of control or whatever. So it's a really funny tweet though. <laughs> um, and so we, <laughs> so we go to the game. So the, next, the day before I have to address, I, I don't think I've ever been in a scrum that big to talk to the Mexican media before. So I apologize to the people. It was only a joke. Apologize to the coach and just try to nip it in the bud there. Well, the next day we get beat five, nothing in the final. And not to say that was fuel for their fire. I think they would have been up for it anyway. Because in 07, we had beat them right. in the final and very dramatically with Benny Fileheimer. But, and obviously, that's a big rivalry anyway. But, man. And I was up in the booth. I was sitting next to John Hackworth, who I think is the U17 coach again, mm-hmm. or, the, or head of all that UC, or the U stuff, really being the eyes in the sky for the coaching staff. And it was 0-0 at half, and we went down at halftime, and I'm trying to talk to different guys. Like, hey, this is what I'm seeing from up high. And that's what I always when I didn't play. Whether I was in the team in the 18 or not, I'd always try to give some insight on something that I saw that could help just make the game easier for, for people. So I saw a few things. I was talking to Chingy about Brian Ching about a couple things. And our guys just looked beat, just worn out. Mm. And it was hot that day, and the crowd was against us. And we gave up the first one, and then <laughs> four goals later, it's 5 nothing, and we just didn't have any pushback after that. And if we didn't score first in that game, uh, it was that was probably how it was going to go. And I don't know how, what my comment did or didn't do, but it didn't help, I assume. And huh. I'm sure it gave them a little more motivation to stomp on us a little bit. I'd like to think that their players thought it was funny. Cause That's the really, thing. is like, why did more Mexicans laugh? I mean, like, it's kind of like... Because it's coming from an American. Yeah. You know, it's like one of those things, hey, I'm only allowed to make fun of my mom. You can't make fun of my mom. You know, so I think it's one of the a little more territorial joke. Um, and I think they were embarrassed by that, that the fact right. that he did it. And so to bring it up in this way and um, for an American player to address it in such a manner... Right. Yeah. Okay. And so yeah, I, I ended up deleting my account because mm. I had been gone. I just had uh, my first child. Yeah. And I had been gone for, or what, no, I didn't have my first child. She was, well, she's little. She's like a year and a half at that point, mm. two years. Yeah, I guess she's little. And people can find out where you live yeah. quite easily. So I thought, hey, man, I'm just going to take it down. I'm not going to address any of this stuff. Um, and I just took it down and uh. it was off Twitter for a little while. And then, yeah, I got the itch. So I got, got back on. But it, it took me a while. And, and I learned a really valuable lesson there. Mm-hmm. Um, and something I had said earlier with regard to just sticking to your opinion. Yeah. If I had just stuck to my opinion and to say the next tweet, say, hey, listen, this is just a joke. Just kidding. Um, I hope nobody took offense to it. Everybody would have moved on to a certain extent, right? I still would have probably had to address the Mexican media and say it again. But I wouldn't, I, I, I felt bad about taking it down. And it, and it really ties into what I had done with Bob in the mm-hmm. first place, which was trying to be somebody that I wasn't uh, for him so that he would think that I was good enough to be on the team and it just ended up becoming more of a psychological game uh, playing for him than it did with anything physical but ultimately that psychological stuff plays into your performance now I'll say this and I try to make sure I say it to anybody that when I want to talk about Bob he gave me plenty of opportunities to make the team he mm-hmm. made me captain four times so I mean I know that he respected me and what I brought to the table but it, I just couldn't get past that final hurdle I just didn't know if I was ever really one of his guys and he probably felt the same way and you know uh so it's it's uh yeah, there's a lot there to mind, but we'll leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. Um, we've meandered around quite a bit here, sure. and I appreciate you taking this much time. But I, I do want to – this transition you made, your Kick TV story is pretty cool because, like, you actually went into something completely new that was just starting off that did quite well. Mm-hmm. What happened? Well, so at the end of 2011, 
I was still working with Fox. My time with Chivas was coming to an end. I got approached by Greg Lawless and um, Jason Seguini, who lifers at MLS and MLS mm-hmm. Digital and, and deserve a ton of credit. Um, they do a lot of thankless work, and, and I appreciate what they've done for many years to help prop that up and, and make MLS Digital uh, relevant. And they said, hey, listen, YouTube came to us. Uh, they want to start a soccer channel. We think you'd be great for it because YouTube's a little bit more, I don't know, more more personality-based, as it were, and we think you're the best guy, and the timing seems right, would you consider it? And at that time, unbeknownst to me, and I had to do some research, YouTube was putting $100 million into 100 channels, original programming, which is it's almost like they were really ahead of the curve because now you see Amazon and Netflix do it to great effect. Mm-hmm. And now YouTube's starting to do it too. They have a YouTube red thing, if you're not familiar with YouTube, where you subscribe to get bigger and better and more produced programming instead of people in their bedrooms. Uh, so... I said, yeah, and I kind of saw it as like an opportunity to, one, move to New York. I think it'd be a cool life adventure. And then, two, do something new and and create something from scratch. Mm -hmm. So I did it. was really uncomfortable for about six months, uh, working with people that were in TV and then dealt with with talent, as it were, (laughs) air quotes, talent, that had backgrounds where they went to school for this type of stuff. And I didn't. Now, sure, you... I knew that I was a pretty decent interview and that I was going to have some fun and bring some levity to my, my, uh, my answers to your questions, but, but this is something different entirely. And it, it came, and I kind of, I gave this advice to Heath when he got started and he retired. You, you got to just, you got to form an opinion. And now that you're in this place, you need to have an opinion on everything. Like people come to you now to have an opinion, even if you don't follow it. Well, what do you think about Manchester United this season? How do you think the Dynamo is going to do? You know, have you seen the Sydney FC in the A-League? Like, you got to have, because everybody sees you now as an expert in some capacity, and you need to feel like you have an idea. So go do some research, learn a little bit, and then and just take some time. Where the big break for me was, was getting out of the studio. We went over to Poland and Ukraine for the Euros in 2012. We saw you. We, we, you and I shared a horse carriage interview. And that was big for me because it showed me what was capable outside of a studio that not everything had to be packaged in this way and that was a big step for us they weren't willing to give us the budget to stay for the whole tournament we could only stay for the group stages but it did enough and the views aren't great you go back and look at them now maybe 8,000 you know to 10,000 views but it's the people that saw it of those 8 to 10,000 that thought this is something that isn't happening nobody's making content like this Mm -hmm. and so we tapped into something and all of a sudden we got people to look at us in a different way and then we started to learn more about the youtube universe and you have all these gaming guys that are starting to blow up like we worked with this this kid uh his name's jj he goes by ksi who's uh very popular in the uk well when we worked with him he had 300 or 400,000 subscribers he's got 16 million now Hmm. and we're talking five years ago i mean he's he's as my friend Casey Neistat, who's also popular on YouTube, says, he's the Michael, KSI's the Michael Jordan of YouTube. That's, that's it's high praise, and it's hard to argue otherwise, but, but we just started to tap into the spirit of YouTube, which is collaboration. Mm-hmm. So once you started to collaborate with other channels and other people, then all of a sudden your audience started to build. And then mm-hmm. we learned when gaming was a big deal, we started hosting our own gaming tournaments, and our audience just started to go from there. And then they started to explore our other content. And like, mm-hmm. all right, cool, I can go to Jimmy to get the news. Or you know, Jimmy's going to present this in a way that's not as stuffy, let's say, as, as what you see on television or if they're in the UK on the BBC. Like, these are people just talking in their shirts, having fun. Like, what do you think? What do you think? And we gave people a platform to talk and to speak to each other about the game. So our engagement after year one was off the charts. Mm-hmm. We were one of the, of the hundred channels. We were one of the five that YouTube reinvested in. And they would use us as a model of, 
look at the subscriber base isn't high, but our subscriber to engagement is better than any other channel we have, huh. especially in the sports landscape. And we didn't have rights. We had MLS rights. So, mm-hmm. But anytime we did MLS stuff, the views would be in half huh. because if you put MLS in the title, people just don't click on it. And it's, it's the worst because it, it just feels like they automatically, the league doesn't get respect. It just, it just feels unfair in a lot of different ways. So I did this one piece about, uh, I think, Pat Ayani scored this incredible goal. He got goal of the year in 2012 or 2013. Incredible side volley for the Sounders back in the day. And I just do this whole video. Like, if Robin Van Persie had scored this, he'd be the god. But we do it here, and you guys go, oh, the goalkeepers suck. You know, or the defenders suck. There's always something. There's always some caveat about the league here. And it just pissed me off. And that was one of our better-viewed videos huh. um, that were where we, I thought we really utilized the highlight in a way to tell a story um, and, and to really pump up MLS in a positive way. Like, there's some great players here that you just – you just don't want to admit that they're great because they play in MLS. And it's just, it's unfortunate. That's still something we have to fight daily. And in some ways, I like that I have a voice globally because it allows me to fight for MLS. And we're, I don't know if, if everybody can. Like MLS, of course, as MLS Digital or MLSsoccer.com, they're going to be cheerleaders for their own league. So you, you take that with a grain of salt. But when somebody like a third party like myself, even though I played in the league, I still try to have balance. Like, yeah, yeah. there's certain things we can do better, but I really love this part of it. And, and I think that because I come at it that way, I think I get a little bit more respect from the global audience. And even the, the kids here. I mean, they're so willing and ready to just support Premier League teams or La Liga or Bundesliga teams without really giving their local team the same kind of love. Um, and so it's fighting that as well because they get into these online communities and especially in the FIFA communities, nobody plays with MLS teams mm. because they're not rated high enough. Mm-hmm. And that hurts as well. And so there's always, it's just, just it's tough. They've it, MLS got an uphill battle, I think, from a global perspective. But you just keep chipping away. And, and I'm not asking for people to fall in love with MLS. I'm just asking for respect. Right. And that these are guys over here in a league that's busting their ass to be relevant in this country. And not only have to fight other, four other major sports, they have to have respect in the global game and it's a unique position that I don't think they necessarily get enough credit for navigating the high seas of, of what that takes. Now, you and I could get into the weeds a little bit and say, well, I, I wish they would do this, that, and the other, but, but uh, in terms of being measured in, in their decision making, I think they're very good at that. I want to wind up by... Oh, really? With the end? <laughs> We're actually going five hours. So I don't know if I told <laughs> you that. Um, I want to wind up by asking about where you see this new media being in in five or ten years and where you see yourself potentially in it yeah those are those are two heavy questions i'd say the first for me i'll go with me first i feel like i'm going to age out of being on camera like they're going to have to put down the clown nose and clown shoes (laughs) and then then decide what phase three is for me Uh, phase one was playing phase two is this this media Uh, i've started my own creative group it's kind of like a more of a production company or uh, I can pretty much help I've learned so much over these last five years that if anybody needed help on the ideation side or at any point in the middle or to the final execution I could either do that myself or bring people in that I trust and know that can do the job and kind of be a a kind of middleman in that regard so there's that that I've kind of set in place so that if I do want to become a production company or if I want to bring somebody in as the next wave of talent and develop them and I can just produce, there's that element of it. And I just wanted to make sure I had a placeholder to make that happen as opposed to just being me as the brand. So there's, there's that element of it. I would say though, 
one of the reasons I haven't got into coaching, and I'm very interested in coaching, is that my two daughters are young, and I know, and I've seen it, not only do those guys age, like, there's some guy, I remember, I remember looking at somebody, maybe it was Robin Frazier when he took over Chivas, he looked like he aged five years in six months, <laughs> poor guy, but the best coaches get fired, and I didn't want to be transient, where our kids can never really get settled in one market, because daddy got fired again, or, you know, had to move on, or his contract, I just didn't want that for them. And now I'm learning so much more in this phase two where I've jumped in with both feet and I've committed myself to this that once they're old enough and out of high school and doing their own thing, well, then maybe talk to the beautiful wife and say, hey, you know, is it now time for coaching where we can go travel around, I can take a job. And I know that anything that I've said or anything that I've done or when I run around in a Speedo is all going to be used against me and some people's going to have some cutout of me in the stands and it's going to be awesome. But the press conferences are going to be amazing. We're going to have some fun press conferences. And, and so I... I think that's what I have in mind. And, and when I get to a certain age or when the kids are out of school, out of high school, I can just brain dump everything that I've learned. What's unfortunate about coaching in general, not just in this country, is that we need our best coaches at the youngest age, but there's no glory in that. There's no money in it. And I, I feel like there might be some academy I could set up or a charter school. Um, that I'm really interested in that part of it mm. and just giving my life to that and trying to give the next generation the tools to be as good as they can at what they're doing. I will look forward to your press conferences when Thank you're you. a coach. Thank you. Um, Jimmy Conrad, thanks for speaking to the podcast. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Jimmy Conrad as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Don Garber, Brian Strauss, Marc-Andre Terstegen, Ivan Rakitic, and Kyle Martino. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, and review it on iTunes. It really does help the cause if you do. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.